You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. The Babylon Project was our last, best hope for peace. A self-contained world five miles long, located in neutral territory. A place of commerce and diplomacy for a quarter of a million humans and aliens. A shining beacon in space, all alone in the night. It was the dawn of the third age of mankind, the year the Great War came upon us all. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2259. The name of the place is Babylon 5. Everybody and welcome once again to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Perón, and today we are finally getting around to doing Babylon 5. This is a show that I've watched for a very long time, very long time ago. And I've always been thinking about trying to do a piece on this show, but it's always felt like a little too broad of a subject because it's kind of like saying, let's do a show about Star Trek. You know, it's just, there's too much of it. Granted, it's only one show, it only lasted five seasons, but when you really, really think about it, if you had the time to watch this show, the show is a very important quality piece of work when it comes to genre, especially science fiction writing. So we're going to take a pretty good look at that, and then I also have a a more specific look at the merchandising of the show, especially the toys. There actually were some toys uh, having to do with Babylon 5, very good quality toys for its time and luckily i was able to collect a number of them i have brought them out you know to put on display as i like to rotate my toys and uh you know they bring back a lot of memories and i'm actually in the process of building an actual model that i've never had a chance to build since i bought it over 20 years ago so let's begin with babylon 5 Television is an amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom-killing business. 
Today I want to touch upon a television show that I started watching a long time ago. Probably, I would say maybe around 1995, 1996, somewhere around that time. I remember I was working, let me think for a minute, I was at my first job. It was after college. And the crew, very short crew of people that I was working with, this is at a company, a production, post-production company in Long Island, New York. And uh, there were a few people, you know, a few people interested in genre material, specifically one guy. And he, every now and then, would mention the show Babylon 5 to me. And at that time, I was, you know, knee-deep in Star Trek. I believe it might have been close to the end, or the end had already happened for Next Generation. DS9 was already in the mix, and possibly whatever came after. I don't know if I don't know if Voyager was already in the works at that time, but like I said, I was already entrenched in Star Trek. And this was also around the time where on regular television channels, and even other, maybe even cable channels at that time, you also had a lower budget tier of science fiction shows or fantasy kind of action shows and that sort of thing where, you know, I, I was aware they were out there, shows like Xena and, and Hercules and stuff like that. And there were some science fiction shows, you know, kind of popping up and down everywhere. And I really did not engage with those shows too much because they looked like a very low-budget situation type of thing. Uh, some of them relied a little too much on comedy, not enough science fiction or not enough of the genre material because of budgetary constraints. Obviously, when you can't deliver on the visuals, you have to then rely on something else, you know. And in this in this particular case, some shows would rely more on comedy or, or that sort of thing. But I do remember this work friend of mine kept talking about it and kept talking about it and... You know, one day I'm like, you know what, I'll give it a try. What the heck? And he would remind me, you know, try it. If you like it, you know, watch this episode, watch that episode, and watch this episode. And if you like it, I can let you borrow my VHS tapes back then of all my other recordings because he had been recording the first season. This is a time also that even I went through this <laughs> <laughs> where I would record everything. Like, if I really liked the show, I would just start recording it. And granted, I was recording them on VHS, I think, at the time. But, you know, all the Star Treks, when I was, you know, when I started watching DS9 and, and Next Gen and everything, all the shows, I would have them all, I would record them all on VHS at a certain point at first. And then after a while, I think I said, screw it, this is insane. When they started coming out on DVD, I would just copy the DVDs. But there was a period where, yeah, I was recording a lot of things. Well, he would record this particular show, I think, uh, because either he liked it or maybe in case somebody else he wanted to show it to or whatever. So, you know, I, I didn't know too much about it. I started watching the show, uh, I, but he also gave me a couple more because he's like, listen, if to, to, to be able to watch this part of this, I guess we were in the second season by then, uh, you got to watch, uh, you know, if you like it, but it would also help if you watch some of these other earlier episodes, specifically this episode and specifically that episode, because there was a different way that this was being presented. It's not that type of show where you can just jump in at any point. It all kind of builds, but by the second season, it really, really starts to come together. So I don't remember exactly how or where I jumped in. It was somewhere in the second season. And all of a sudden, I got hooked on the show. And, you know, it was different. 
there was a different feel to it. There was a different look to it also. And this is something that I've talked about in an earlier episode. And that kind of sparked my interest in the show. I thereby went, <laughs> borrowed the rest of his episode, watched the whole season one. I watched the pilot movie that was released even earlier than season one, obviously, and kind of got myself caught up and then progressed forward with this show. The pilot itself premiered in 1993. And it was a TV movie called The Gathering. And this is where we get to meet all the main characters. The show itself was put together by Michael J. Straczynski. Before Babylon 5, he had a background in a lot of children's television, animation, that sort of thing. I think he did work for uh, the real Ghostbusters, He-Man, She-Ra, the revival of The Twilight Zone he did some work for, Captain Power and the Soldiers of Fortune. That was a really weird little television show that was very early CGI oriented also. So, but he also had done, I believe, some Murder, She Wrote, and he also worked on Walker, Texas Ranger, you know, between the pilot of Babylon 5 and the actual show taking place. So he was kind of like an up and coming, primarily a writer. He's a writer. He's, he writes like crazy. And even after Babylon 5, he's done other work. But right now, Babylon 5 seems to be his big, big stamp that he left, you know, so far in uh, science fiction, especially television. So with the TV movie, you basically established the plot that, you know, the year is 2257, I believe. And you're in this space station that is gigantic, massive, like five mile long space station out in a far section of space. And the station serves almost kind of like a United Nations kind of setting uh, for the major worlds that Earth is familiar with, let's say. And this is taking place also about 10 years after the end of a war that Earth had with the Minbari, which is one of these races, one of these major races. The Minbari are a very religious warrior kind of culture. They uh, look different than us. Uh, they're humanoid shape, but they had at this point, while we're seeing this, you know, when, when we watch this premiere episode, they have very uh, cranial uh, bone structures coming, protruding from their head and they're bald on top. They have no hair practically. And their cultures or their society is divided into castes. So you have warriors, religious, and I think workers. So that's the way they function. As you are born, you're put into one of these uh, different castes, and that's how you live the rest of your life as. Well, something happened that we learn about later, that we were in some kind of war with them. And at the last minute, everything stopped. Earth was almost destroyed, but the Mimbari decided to stop and surrender for some mysterious reason. So part of the reason or part of the reasoning behind uh, building the space station is to avoid future wars and future misunderstandings and future things like that that would, uh, you know, lead to war. Again, the, the similarities between this and the United Nations, it's very similar, you know, post-World War I kind of a, a setup. Another race that we meet, another major race that we meet within the plot structure of the show is the... Centauri. Now, the Centauri, uh, the background we are given is that the Centauri were, were the, the first alien race that Earth had encountered. And they were pretty friendly to us in terms of, at first, they told us that they found us because we were a long distance cousins of their race or something like that, which turned out not to be true. 
But they're also very, their history is more of a, they used to be a conquering empire kind of race, and and they've gone kind of downhill through the years or the ages. And now they're kind of fluttering out there. They're kind of uh, not that important anymore, but they're very royal in how they present themselves. You can kind of think of them as a combination of the, uh, let's say, the British and the Russian monarchs, you know, the kings and emperors and queens and, you know, all kinds of royalty attached to their structure. And again, we have a lead character who is one of the ambassadors at Babylon 5, just like the Mimbari have a, a an ambassador. Those are our main characters. And traditionally, we're... Um, let to understand that the that Centauri for a very long time had been at war with the Narn, I believe, and they were able to conquer and enslave them for many, many years. And now that the Narn are free for a certain amount of time, there have been flare-ups now between these two races that continue to, you know, to at least this point. The Narn, another race, again, another major race, you know, represented by their ambassador there. A less scientific race, a less technologically advanced race, more agrarian. They're also uh, less humanoid. They're a little more lizard-like, let's say, a little more uh, of a different species altogether. The Centauri, traditionally, you could kind of tell them apart because they look human, but they do have kind of pointed teeth, like... uh, uh, very uh, cannibalistic teeth, let's say. And the hair. They, part of their tradition is to spike up their hair to create this fan shape on top of their head. And, you know, the bigger the hair, the more quaff the hair, the, the more important you are, the more royal you are, I guess. The Nara, on the other hand, very, like I said, lizard-like, warrior uh, kind of dress, not royal at all like the Centauri. They're very warrior. And again, they're always at each other's throats. They're always in this constant conflict with the uh, Centauri. I guess in modern times, you can kind of uh, describe them as the relationship you might currently, or in, or in the past, God knows how many years, you've had between, let's say, Israel and the Palestinians. It's that, you know, we were the occupiers, and now you want something from us. You know, you're, you know, that this, this uh, give and take, presser type of relationship. So that's the kind of background you get with these, uh, with this race. You have Earth, obviously, who's running the station. They're the ones who are uh, in charge of security and, and maintenance and everything having to do with the station. But through this story, we do have some background races also that you could kind of call them like the B characters, if you will. And they're there kind of to sprinkle out the feel of having a multi- I don't want to say national, but multi-galactic representation of what's happening. But those are the main ones. And, and you know, Earth does have a friendlier, let's say, uh, more common relationship with the Centauri. Because, uh, for, again, part of the backstory is that the Centauri offered Earth, for the first time, jump gate technology. And jump gate technology is what most of these franchises or television shows need in order to be able to transport to other galaxies in star wars is hyperspace technology and in in star trek is warp speed uh you know everybody has a version of it and here it's jump gates and these jump gates are these mechanically constructed structures in space that create kind of like a wormhole that will let you go in one end and you come out out the other end thereby being able to 
you know, crisscross the galaxy. Other shows are, like in Star Trek, for example, there are wormholes, especially in DS9, but there are natural formations of space. Okay, fine. And people are able to kind of go in and out of them. In Star Wars, it's all mechanical. It's, you know, hyperspace uh, is, is, is an area where you can travel fast, but to engage into it, you have to go into it through a mechanical mean of accelerating your ship to be able to get into hyperspace, let's say. Here, it's almost like a combination of both because you are creating it mechanically. Uh, and that's important because that's part of the way that people get in and out of this area. They come in through jump gates. They come in and they come out and they come in and they come out. Now, before I continue with uh, other races, other major races, when this show premiered or around the time the show started and started to really cook, there were some criticisms because of the fact that we also had uh, DS9 happening almost right afterwards. And there's always been some controversy about you know who copied who, who did it first and that sort of thing. I'm pretty sure Babylon 5 did it first. But it was one of these similar plots that were pitched around the same time. And then, you know... All of a sudden, a second one shows up. You know, you have DS9, which is a similar situation. It's a space station. You know, Trek has never done a space station-centered show, uh, centric show. People coming in and out of these uh, wormhole jump gates, whatever we want to call them, you know. And, you know, basically all the action coming to you instead of you going out. But anyway, let's go back to the actual main characters of the show, you have, okay, so we have those major races, but then you have another race that is a very mysterious race that was going to play a very important role called the Vorlons. And the Vorlons, we know practically nothing about the Vorlons. We know that the Membari are somewhat familiar with them. We know, but they won't really talk about it much. The other races just kind of fear them because they're just suspicious of them and they don't know anything about them. Um, Earth knows zero about them. And the Vorlons also, they look different, and we really don't know what they look like. The representative of the, of the Vorlon Empire wears a like an exosuit, like an environment suit. So he is inside the suit, and we almost never see him. As early as the premiere, we get some glimpses at what might be some kind of light-emitting creature or something inside. And throughout the show, you know, little by little, this particular character or this particular race becomes even more and more important against the bad guy of the uh, uh, of the show. The bad guy of the show, the bad race of the show, let's say, is something called the Shadows. And little by little, we start learning about the Shadows and how they're these ancient evil race that used to fight against Vorlons and other, and they were at one point vanquished, but not destroyed. And now we're coming around a time where these shadows creatures are starting to kind of pop back in. They don't have an official representative. They're in the sh they're shadows. They're in the shadows, ironically. But that's basically what we're dealing with. Now, the thing about the show is that it lasted five years. This is what you got to keep in mind. 93, we got the pilot. From 94 to 98, we got five seasons of the show. During the last year of the show, the show uh, was not done by any major network. It was independently done. It was done with an independent company, and it was aired independently on independent channels. But it was distributed by Warner Brothers. So there was a slight connection to a major entity that at least provided them with a, a source of being able to go and distribute the show. Right up until the end, right up until the fourth season, after the fourth season, 
I believe the either the distributor or the producer or something kind of went under and they opted not to continue doing the show. So the show switched hands to TNT, a cable provider. So the final season of the show ended up being on cable. Also around that time, we got a whole bunch of other TV movies to kind of help along and to promote the show and to tell some stories that they wanted to tell. There was a TV movie called In the Beginning, which is a prequel to everything that we see here, which is the best of all of them. There's one called Third Space, one called River of Souls. They're okay, not as great as In the Beginning. Those came out in 98, right around the time of the end of the show. The following year in 1999, with TNT still, we have A Call to Arms, another TV movie that led as the pilot, let's say, or the jumping ground to a new series called Crusade, which is a continuation of Babylon 5. This one only lasted one season, didn't get too much traction. Then in 2002, uh, the Sci-Fi Channel premiered another television movie called Legend of the Rangers, which was supposed to be another possible jumping off point that didn't lead to anything. And later in 2007, a straight-to-DVD movie was put out, which is a series of stories called Lost Tales, which was, again, a combination of characters having to do from Babylon 5 and from Crusade, you know, giving us these additional stories. This was the hope at the time that maybe the show could go, you know, be done straight-to-DVD as a new concept, but again, it didn't work. This was before the insanity of streaming services <laughs> that nowadays is very popular, where you do have shows that don't even bother going to networks. They go straight to a streaming service. As the show developed, we got some books, we got some comic books, we got soundtracks, we got action figures. Not a lot, but some. And I think we even got a PC video game somewhere in the mix there or two. What made this show different than any other show at least that I had seen at the time that I had bothered to put, you know, spend the time, is that for a sci-fi show, it told the story in a different manner. Most shows, if you think about it at this time, especially science fiction, you concentrate basically on one story at a time. In other words, what is the story of the week that they're telling you? This show was a little different because Straczynski designed the show so that it would last five seasons. And he kind of broke off the stories in a five-season arc. And as you're telling whatever it is that the story of the week happens to be, which there is always a story of the week, you have an ongoing plot that is developing from episode to episode. And it's building and building and building all the way through the end. That's the original plan. And that is the major, major hook of this show, is that you are being told an ongoing story. You're getting basically two for the price of one. You're getting the story of the week and the overall arc. Sometimes the overall arc is so important that it becomes the story of the week. But sometimes the arc takes a little bit of a backseat to tell another story up front. And that was the plan from the beginning, which he was able to kind of pull off. And I say kind of pull off because what happened is... Towards the end of the fourth season, because this was an independent production, it was always very difficult to know whether or not they were going to be renewed for another season. The first season was very rough, like I said earlier. I wouldn't say you can skip it, but I would say 
it's hard to get hooked on the show with just the first season. It is definitely the second season that really, really, you know, sucks you in. And guess what? This happens a lot. Even with Star Trek Next Generation, I remember, you know, the first season was a little rough. Even with all the money they had and even with the cachet of Star Trek, you know, franchise, it was still a pretty rough first season. Everybody kind of found their footing by the time you get to the second and so forth. And you then start to introduce other characters. You know, you have major, major new characters. They throw in there and they tweak things. Same thing with Babylon 5. The first season was a very rough one. And I am very surprised they were able to survive the first season. However, there were enough little nuggets, little diamonds in the rough in the first season that will carry on to the second and third and fourth and all the way through. So what was happening is, like I said before, every time you go for a new season, it was a very tense moment where they would try to find out whether or not they had enough money to continue. What ended up happening is that close to the end of the fourth season, they were told that's it, they couldn't go any further. The distributors were no longer going to distribute it, so that was the end of Warner Brothers' involvement. So they had to go shopping around for another place, and they ended up with TNT. Now, TNT allowed them to do a fifth season and wrap it all up. The problem was that they weren't sure that was going to happen. So what they did was Straczynski had to rearrange a lot of story elements, storyline elements, so that some major stories could get wrapped up in the fourth season, just in case there was no fifth season. He wanted to be able to do that. And at the last minute, at the 11th hour, as they say, all of a sudden TNT came in, took over, they were able to continue. So... There is a definite shift that you see in the story structure where you kind of feel like the fourth season is really wrapping the major stories down, and and it does wrap up some major, major stories down. And the type of stuff that they had to kind of scrap from being told in the future, because I thought it was the end, because they didn't have enough episodes now to wrap it all up, that material got kind of pushed forward to the fifth season. So the fifth season uh, feels a little bit like a postscript. It feels like a little bit as a uh, as a secondary ending to everything. So it doesn't pack the punch that you get, you know, in the uh, in, in, you know from the second to the fourth season. With that said, you do get some really again great, great episodes. The last episode is very good. There's lots of little episodes that tell you about well, what happens when. You know, after you finish a war, let's say, there's pockets of problems everywhere having to do with the results of that war and, you know, the aftermath of that war. So that that was something that was very fortunate that they could they were able to explore. But they also explored some other areas that were like kind of like, well, I guess this might be a little bit of filler, or this is the type of thing that should have been sprinkled on earlier, and that's kind of what happened. I'm not gonna say the last season is as of the quality of the first season. No, it is still much better because you still have so much of that energy that's just carrying through. But it is also worth noting that the show has been many times tried to be revived and it was they haven't been able to do that yet. Uh, I don't know if this is the type of thing that you could reboot or you can continue. You know, you go in another direction. But every now and then, Michael Straczynski, you do hear him, you know, on Twitter or Facebook or whatever forum he uses. Uh, you know, he talks about a lot of things that happen within the show, and and little by little, you start to learn about it. The main characters, as I mentioned before, that you have the main races, but you do have 
again, you know, it's so funny how, how, how things work out that, you know, nothing, nothing goes as planned, basically, in terms of, you know, who ends up doing what and how the writer has to kind of rearrange things. One of the uh, very imaginative ways that the show functions, like I said before, is then it works in an arc. The arc is the lifeblood of the show. And it is one of the things that I started to appreciate later and later as I watched other television shows. You could kind of say that it might have inspired, in a way, shows like Lost, Battlestar Galactica, or even Game of Thrones, where you're telling a very wide, 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 wide story, the mythology, the behind the story of the weak story is the most important thing, at least to certain viewers. Lost, for example, you know, you have the story and you have the mythology. Some people are more about the story of the week, and some people are more about the overall arc, arcing story. How long was that arcing story planned out? Well, it turns out that it probably wasn't planned out that well for Lost. They were kind of making it up as they went along, more or less. But Lost is one of those shows that you just can't jump in. And I got one episode and I missed an episode. It's not a sitcom that you can kind of run in and out of. This was a very serialized type of structure. Battlestar Galactica also did it that way. There was a plan, <laughs> no pun intended. There's a plan that goes from here to here, and you're telling this story. And to me, it seems like they had a more concrete structure built from beginning to end and how they were going to sprinkle on you know, all the different plot developments. And same thing with Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is a, you're telling a long story. Granted, Game of Thrones is based on books, uh, books that are still being written, I believe, in some shape or form. So it wasn't just a television show, but it was a television show that was adapted from a written structure, and they decided to follow that structure, the structure of the overall arc. Certain things are important here. They're going to make sense two, three seasons down the line. That's the type of stuff that you see a lot, at least with Babylon 5. I can't tell you for sure that they're originators of it, but at least it is the first time that I that you notice it, that at least I noticed it so much that I go, wow, this little element from season two becomes so important a year later or two years later. You know, it's great how you know, you're able to do that as a writer. And another interesting thing is that out of the 100 and I don't remember how many, I think it's like 110 episodes or something like that, that they did, you know, five seasons worth. Straczynski wrote, I think, about 90% of those episodes. He wrote 90-some episodes, I think. Uh, so at first, in a traditional sense, like a traditional show, he was allowing other writers to come in and, and write. But then he just kind of said, you know what, the only way to keep the whole show structure tight, you know, focused on the main important plot points that are going to progress, is for him to just do it himself. And that's probably possibly one of the reasons why the first season is a little disjointed. Uh, is not as focused is because you have so many different writers, you know, in the mix. The other thing about the show is that one of the reasons they were able to go independent for the majority of it is because they tried to figure out a way of doing the special effects in a cheaper manner. Up until this point, most special effects, not all, but most, were done by a combination of models and some CGI. Some CGI. Even Next Generation was a combination and Next Generation also had a lot of like stock footage, even of space stock footage and CGI ship movements and that sort of thing, where you see a ship moving from left to right and, okay, we get it, it's the same ship. Just like the original show had that thing, uh, where it's the same ship moving left to right and it's a different episode. And it's like, well, who cares? You're okay. We're now in the mid-90s. The CGI explosion is taking place little by little, but primarily... 
it's happening, you know, in the movie theaters. Babylon 5 was the first show where they were able to work with a company at first. And I believe then they then they kind of made their own company at one point to, to be able to handle those special effects themselves, where every single space-related effects, space battles, spaceships, the station itself, anything having to do with that sort of thing, even some... I think even some space aliens at some point or some internal special effects, but the majority of all that out spacey kind of effects were all CGI. Completely, completely, completely. I doubt there was one model build and shot. It was all done internally, you know, through computers. And this was the first time that a show had gone that far with CGI. I had mentioned in a couple of episodes ago, the movie The Last Starfighter, where all of a sudden somebody said, all right, let's give it a try. Let's do a movie where all the space shots are all CGI. Well, here is the television version of that is let's do it that way. And at the time, the effects were very well done. There was a certain look, there was a certain slickness to it. Granted, nothing ages well. You could look at them now and go, yeah, that's CGI. Of course you can do that. Especially now when you have HD TVs and the show never made it past, I think, DVD format. The show has never been adapted for high definition television. So even if you watch it on DVD, you know, you're going to notice a difference. Now, one of the things that they were able to do back then, which is very smart, and you know, you wish a lot of other shows could have done that, is they would shoot a lot of their material, I believe most of it, really, to tell you the truth, in a 16 by 9 aspect ratio. Because they knew at the time, we knew, a lot of people knew at the time, that HDTV was coming, and so was its aspect ratio was coming. So they wanted to kind of be one step ahead. And yes, the show did, I remember, I believe they used to air with the little slight you know, black bars on top on the bottom, because they knew that that was coming. So that's one of the good things nowadays is that, you know, when you watch it, you can watch it in the proper aspect ratio. However, they still have not fixed the uh, high definition aspect, especially of the special effects, because that's the thing that kind of, you know, rocks a little back and forth. Currently, I think Amazon Prime, I think, has Babylon 5. And uh, when you do notice those cuts from one to the other, you're like, whoa, what's going on here? This looks a little off. And yeah, they haven't fixed that yet. But let's go back a little bit to the show and try to give you a little background on the characters. The uh, commander of the station originally was Jeffrey Sinclair, who was played by Michael O'Hare. He lasted one season and then left the show. He had to leave the show, we found out, way, 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 way later because he had medical problems. He was also, you know, there was also not that warm of a reaction to his character in terms of his acting, let's say. So at the time, whether it was done on purpose or not to kind of hide his medical issues could be possible. It could be that. But it was also the the show needed a slight reboot. It needed a slight correction, course correction, because it was kind of getting a little disjointed by having so many writers again in the mix. So one of the things they did is they replaced the, the, the lead captain, the lead commander with John Sheridan played by Bruce Boxliner. You guys probably remember him from Tron. And he became the captain for the rest of the series. He was a much better fitting actor. However, Michael O'Hare returned a couple of seasons later to play the same character in a very, very important role down the line. You have Ivanova, you know, second in command, Garibaldi, the security chief. Delenn is the Mimbar ambassador, 
Uh, Stephen Franklin is the doctor. You have a doctor. Lanier is um, Delenn's aide. Later on, you have other captains that join. Lockley was one of them. You have Marcus, who's a ranger, who kind of is an, as a human, an Earth and Minbari, a, like special agent, let's say, warrior. Zach Allen, played by Jeff Conway, he was like a security aide. Lita Alexander plays a telepath. That's another thing about the show is that it has these sublines, these subplots about Earth, little by little, becoming more of a totalitarian environment. EarthGov. It's not longer countries. It's the entire planet. And the show involves an assassination of a president and then the takeover by his vice president, who is not only super totalitarian, but at this point, he institutes a, uh, they call the Night Watch, which is kind of like a pseudo <laughs> Nazi kind of group. And he uses uh, telepaths, uh, people with telekinetic abilities, you know, to enforce his rule. And all kinds of stuff like that is happening on Earth while they're trying to, here, very far away, keep control, keep order between all these uh, different worlds. While all this is happening, behind the scenes, you have wars coming up. The Nara and the Centauri are going at each other's throats again. They're being instigated, and the Centauri, especially Londo, the, the ambassador, he is tippy-toeing around some mysterious agents who are helping him you know, defeat the Narn, uh, little to his uh, little knowing at the time that these are shadow agents that are behind the scenes preparing their big move against the entire galaxy. And they're being used. The Centauri are all being used unbeknownst to them until it's too late and they're really deep into it. All of these different worlds, these main worlds, we get to examine all the machinations of all the crazy political things that are going on and how you have somebody who is kind of the puppet master behind this whole thing, pulling the strings and making things go in a certain direction. The show peaks, I think, somewhere in the third or fourth season where a point comes where Babylon 5 itself, the, the command structure, you know, our heroes, if you will, they're out there by themselves. They can no longer trust EarthGov because they have been infiltrated by possibly shadow-related agents. These other worlds, the Centauri, they're deep in it. The Narn are being crushed. And the Minbari, they're kind of, they're almost like Vulcans in terms of they try not to get involved, but there's little by little, they're seeing more problems and more problems. And the Vorlines just give you advice and don't help. <laughs> so... One of the best parts of the show is there's a point in a, there's an episode called Severed Dreams where they finally have to secede from EarthGov. And all of a sudden, it's like, holy crap, they're declaring themselves their own entity and they have to fight against their own ships. And that is a tremendous, tremendous episode. It is such a epic episode in, in this series. It is probably one of the highlights of it, which leads to them all of a sudden becoming their own nation for a certain amount of time, their own independent structure. Later on, you have a couple of episodes called War Without End, Part 1 and Part 2. And this is where you start dealing in time travel. And things that happened in the first season and one episode called Babylon Square, which gives you the history of what happened to the other Babylon stations. Remember, this is Babylon 5. They've been other Babylon stations in the history. And... My God, talk about how this thing is structured and how an item from the first season plays such a super important 
role in the you know later seasons in the fourth or the third season and that sort of thing these are the huge leaps that the show jumps back and forth it is really very difficult to go episode by episode or plot line by plot line but all i can tell you is that there are some great great episodes i think if i really really think hard the first episode I might have watched, even before being prompted, just for the hell of it, I think one night I was just flipping through channels, and it's an episode called Gropos, and it's an episode about a whole bunch of Earth soldiers, let's say, ground pounders, Gropos, who have to stop at Babylon Station for a layover, let's say, before they get to wherever planet they're going to fight, some kind of fight or something. And we get to, you know, we get to know, like, four or five of these characters, and they all become friends with certain other characters in the show. And, and you know, they're, they talk about their individual lives and their relationships and all the different things. And by the time we get to the end of the episode, they're all watching a television newscast about where these soldiers went to. And the show basically ends with a long shot of all these dead soldiers, including all the ones we just met. Uh, how all this wave of people that came in just by the snap of the fingers after a battle they're all dead so it was like whoa this is some heavy 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 stuff which kind of i remember that's the thing that like you know a little light came on i'm like this is an interesting show you know the production value is not star trek caliber but they're really telling you a very very you know emotionally impactful story and that i think is one of the reasons why I then later on was able to be convinced to, you know what, you might want to give this show a try, you know, from that friend I had. As I mentioned before, the fifth season is a good wrap-up season. It's almost like a post-season. It's almost like a bonus season, if you will. The last episode, Sleeping in Light, is super, super emotional, and it wraps up all the majority of the important events that happen to the main characters. You find out what happened to some of them. Granted that later on, some of these characters show up again when they try to revive the show in different manners. Some of them do here or there. But going through the fifth season, I think, is the best thing that you could do. If you get hooked on the show the way I did, yes, of course, try on the other ones. Try on the, the extra shows. Try the extra TV movies. In the beginning, that movie that takes place in what's called the Battle of the Line, which is the it's supposed to be the battle, the final battle between Mimbari and Earth, that all of a sudden the Mimbari are ready to annihilate all the Earth troops, but something happens that makes them stop right at the edge of winning the war and makes them stop and surrender. And it's like, what? You know, everybody's like, what? Now you know, and it ties to everything. What happens in this episode will tie to just about all these other major landmark episodes on this show. It is absolutely fantastic. The rest of them is just bonus stuff. You might like the extra movies, you might not. Crusade was interesting. Some very interesting visually designs that were made. And the actors are, you know, I really like some of those actors, but the show just didn't get enough traction to continue past the first season. The comics, there's a number of comics. You know, they go in all different directions. There's a few of them. There's a few comics. Uh, there's one particular series called In Valen's Name, which gives you, again, this this little chunk of information having to do with the Mimbari uh, spiritual, let's say, uh, leader, the, uh, the first leader of the Mimbari, that ties in, again, so importantly, to some of these events of War Without End and traveling back in time. The books, uh, there's one specific one called The Shadow Within, which is a great, great 
uh, novel having to do with Sheridan's wife's disappearance uh, near Zahadum. You will know what that means when you watch the show. It is almost, to me, it's like an episode. It's an episode that should have been turned into an episode. I, I love that one. Later on, they put out some other novels to give you a little more background information in terms of the history of the Psychor, which is the, the, the telekinetic branch of the military, <laughs> of the EarthGov military, all the way to the present characters. We even had Walter Koenig uh, from Star Trek. He played uh, Bester, one of the Psychor thugs <laughs> in the series. Then you have uh, a whole other trilogy having to do with Centauri Prime, the main planet and, and what happens, you know, as a result of all of this mess and then you have one about the Technomages. This is a, a race of like uh, wizards, let's say, technological wizards that are more introduced. I mean, we do get a little bit of it in Babylon 5, but later on in Crusade, he's one. He's a major character. There's one of them there that plays a major, major role in Crusade. And so they did give us a, a trilogy of books about that. But then, like I said, you have those independent books with standalone stories. So there's a lot of really good, good stuff in there. That if you want to go further, uh, you really can. It is possible to get more bonus material. There were some scattered stories here in some magazines. You can, you know, you could find that. And it is just incredible the amount of work and the amount of time that was put in, the amount of thought that was put into structuring this story. There's a whole world of this out there if you're interested. So Babylon 5 was really one of these subjects that I... As much as I loved it, I didn't want to talk about it too much because I didn't want to shortchange it in any way. And I still feel like after talking for it for almost an hour now, I still feel I have I shortchanged the story. To go over the story structure, the plot points, the major plot points, and how things interweave, it would take days because there's such a rich world that was constructed. Again, if you're the mythology type of person... If you remember that word when you were dealing with the show Lost, if you were mostly interested in how everything connected, I had many arguments with people who would tell me, oh, the show is fantastic because I love the emotional individual moments of the characters. And the mythology doesn't really matter if it doesn't match up, if it doesn't explain itself. And that was one of the biggest criticisms of the show was that sometimes they were kind of making it up and the mythology would kind of contradict itself. Uh, as much as I love the show, I, you know, I was very critical of those mythological uh, hurdles that they were not able to sometimes, you know, jump over. Here, I would say for the most part, the mythology drives the show and the mythology is what connects it all. And it works. They pulled it off. Straczynski pulled it off. I was finally able to meet Straczynski very briefly once uh, at a convention. This is years, years after Babylon 5 was over and he was back, you know, pitching other stuff, uh, doing comic book stuff. And he was actually signing for free, which is a baffling, incredible idea for me. And I remember I stood in line and uh, I got him to sign my Babylon 5 in Valen's name comic, which is the number one. And I couldn't believe how easy it was just to see him and meet him and have him sign it. And again, you're in a comic, you're in a, this was a free, you didn't even have to pay for it. He was doing it for free. And it was like, holy crap, you just didn't know what to say. And I think I, I, I think I might've said something like, you know, I, I love Babylon 5 and thank you so much. And he was like, oh, you're welcome. Yeah, here you go. And sign it, you know, next. <laughs> so it's one of those moments where you're like, wow, you just, how do you express, you know, to somebody that you admire for so long, you know, how you feel about the 
their art in a span of 10 seconds. <laughs> well, luckily, I didn't make a fool of myself, and hopefully he appreciated that. You can collect them all! You are a toy! Batteries not included. Get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. Well, while we are on the subject of Babylon 5... And since I did mention it through the previous segment, the merchandising of the show, specifically toys, which is the you know the big thing with me, is something that I had kind of dived into a little bit when it first started. First off, I would say that one of the initial items that I started collecting pretty early, probably in 1996, I would say, is a series of Babylon 5 micro-machines. Now, if you guys remember the Micro Machines, they've been through many incarnations for genre material, such as Star Wars and Star Trek and many, many other movie-based franchise, Terminator, Alien, Aliens, Predator, Indiana Jones, uh, you know, you name it. They've done small collections and they've done huge collections, uh, Star Wars and Star Trek, those being pretty good examples of huge collections. Babylon 5 was more of a medium-sized collection, I would say. The total amount of ships that were released were 18, I believe. And they each came in packs of three. I was able to get all of them. Luckily, there were not any unusual variants or, you know, you can only get this one if you buy this set or this one's only available in this country and that sort of thing. But let's go through some of the ships that they were able to produce. Obviously, the Babylon 5 station is the, the main one. The Star Fury, pretty nice one. There's a Babylon 5 cruise shuttle, pretty nice, standard looking. You do see it pop up, and you actually see all of these pop up during the show. The Earth Alliance Atmospheric Shuttle, that's a pretty nice one. And then you have the Earth Force 1, which is the President's arrival ship. For the Centauri, you have... A Centauri transport and a Centauri passenger ship, very stylistic to the particular race. Uh, one of them is purple. You know, if you remember the show, there is the color purple is very important for the Centauri. Then you have a whole bunch of Narn-looking ships: the Narn fighter, the Narn transport, the heavy dreadnought, and the Narn heavy cruiser. That's the one that looks very different than the rest of them. Then you have some Mimbari ships, the Mimbari Flyer and the Mimbari Cruiser. The Mimbari Cruiser is the one that looks like a starfish. It's a very iconic ship in the show that appears many, many times. And then you have the Vorlon Transport and the Vorlon Cruiser. Again, two very different, different, very organic looking ships on purpose because that was the way that they were designed for the show and they're part of that whole thing. Then you have some more humanish kind of ships. I guess the green ship, the raider ship, which is a triangular ship that appeared a lot in the first season. And then they kind of discarded the raiders, I think. And the Marie Celeste, a, a more of an, an Earth-style uh, ship. 
again, these came in sets of three with their own individual bases. And they were very good because they were very well detailed. They're painted really well. And uh, I have them here on display now, you know, because lately, since I've been working on not only a Babylon 5 show, but I've been working on a model. And that brings us to models. Uh, officially, Babylon 5 put out two models by the Ravel Monogram Company. One of them is the actual Babylon 5 station, and the other one is the Star Fury. Now, again, one of the reasons why I'm on this Babylon 5 mode recently is because I've been working on the station. Finally, after I couldn't tell you how many years of having a box full of models from, I'm going to say, maybe 20 years now, maybe more. Models I've been collecting that I've never had a chance to build, I actually cracked open the box and started putting together the Babylon 5 station. And it's really cool because it's taking, you know, I'm not rushing it. I'm doing it a very little at a time. And I'm also re-watching the whole series in the process. And it's really, really interesting, you know, reliving the entire series from the beginning. I'm watching again the order that, I, you know, that the series was actually put out and not so much in the original order that I was watched it. But it's really cool, you know, every now and then, you know, I'm working on this model and, you know, for reference, I have the show right in front of me and I have freeze-framed the show to see the color variations. The Ravel model is really an interesting model. And one of the things I remember about models that I, I'm, I'm, I'm rediscovering all over again is how light they are. You know, I expect this thing to be a sturdy, heavy kind of metallic thing, but no, it's plastic model, you know, you have to be very careful. I've been following the instructions as much as possible. I've been going to websites, watching any kind of YouTube video I can get my hands on, on how, you know, how to do models and that sort of thing. And I haven't done it in a long time. I'd like to think that this one is really well done in terms of the way I'm putting it together. Now, granted, this is a model that is very old and while the plastic, you know, is in very good shape, everything is in great shape. The labels, the water-soluble labels that you're supposed to put on, I've added a little bit of discoloration to it because of the age. Um, so they do look a little bit off. But what's funny is that if you look at the box, the main picture in the box looks nothing color-wise like you do if you watch the show. And because, again, the show was a CGI show, you're really never going to have a good reference that you could say, well, this is how the show painted it. No, but if you want the show painted something, you're going to be looking at a CGI rendered model and what color, you know, schemes they use for that. And it's very iffy because, again, it's a space station. It's a, it's always in space, obviously, space station. It's usually at night. So the colors are very dark and depends on uh, how the light hits it, it looks different colors. So it actually helps me in being able to paint it and, uh, you know, adhere some of these um, discolored labels that it actually helps a little bit. I've been doing a lot of weathering to it and a lot of wash to it to give it a little more of a used feel to it. It's probably going to take me a while longer to finish it. Not too much. I think I'm, I'm on the home stretch now. I'm putting it together, the final pieces, and giving it its final sets of colors and I'm finding it that I'm kind of winging it at certain points. I'm, I'm adding certain colors that are not necessarily the colors that you might find on the show, but it kind of seems to make sense, you know, in terms of how the station would look. What's really interesting about the model is that it is built in a certain way where you can actually rotate certain areas of the model. 
some areas, you know, you specifically do not glue on purpose, where you glue certain sections so that they can rotate, and like the station would rotate, and that is individual sections of the station, they have a rotation to them, you know, in the show, it's to obviously create artificial gravity, and that works really well. I am probably going to, at some point, build the second one I have, and that is the Star Fury, and that is a nice, nice, big, big model as far as I'm concerned, big, big model. You know, again, as, as opposed to the, the, the Galoob Micro Machines that are about, you know, they're about two inches long and on average, more or less. So, you know, sooner or later, I'm probably going to be hitting those. But that's as far as they went with models, at least with Ravel. There are other models out there, uh, resin models that people, you know, you can order them online. They're a little more... Uh, you know, homemade type things. And, you know, the selections are wild in terms of how many different selections they have. With Galoob, I wish they could have continued because it is such a cool collection to have these very small made renditions. And there were so many more that they should have made. There are no representations for the shadows, for any of the shadow vessels, which would have been perfect. But they never really got around to that. However, let me talk a little bit about the action figures because, believe it or not, that kind of in a bizarre way, leads to a couple of additional ships in a bizarre manner. Well, the action figures came out somewhere around 1997, and they continued in different waves all the way up to, I think, 2000. And at a certain point, they exchanged hands from exclusive premiere, that particular brand, to N2 Toys. Um, for some reason, the fourth wave, they switched hands to this N2 Toys company. But initially, they put out some figures under exclusive premiere, as well as some dolls, some larger size, about nine-inch dolls. Now, I remember seeing those dolls, and they just did not look right to me. The proportions were off. The heads looked a little too big, and, uh, you know, a lot of cloth, soft goods that just did not feel right, which is a, a common problem with doll type of collectibles is that they're never really in proper proportions now action figures on the other hand that's a little more up my alley i'm more used to that this is also around the time where i guess it's probably the beginning of the mcfarlane phase of toy you know change where we're moving away from the three and three quarter traditional you know 1980s type of action figures into a little more you know larger kind of figures now with this Exclusive premiere waves that came out, you have the first wave of six-inch figures, which you had Captain Sheridan, which is Sheridan wearing the black, you know, post-secession uniform. Delenn with hair, you know, from, from the second season forward. Jakar. And then they also had a Jakar variant, which is he's wearing a darker uniform, which ironically, I just found it on eBay and I ordered one because, you know, I'm back in this Babylon 5 mode and I, you know, I couldn't pass it up because it was such a good deal. You also have a Londo Malari. Again, you're, you're some of your big heavy hitters from the show. Now, what is interesting about these figures is that they don't have accessories. They don't come with any accessories you can attach to their hands, whether they be guns or anything else like that. They don't have that. But each figure comes with a small ship. The ships are very similar to the ships that we saw uh, with the Micro Machine line, except they're a little larger. They're about, maybe about twice as large, maybe three or four inches long. They're definitely not Micro Machines, but they're very close in terms of how well made and painted they are. Now, what is interesting here is that 
the ships that come with these first five figures are more or less repeats of ships that we've already seen with micro machines. Now, when we get to the second wave of figures, we are going to have Lieutenant Ivanova. Again, she's wearing the black uniform, ponytail, and she comes with a Star Fury. That's a little different one. Going back to the other ones, Sheridan comes with a a version of Babylon 5. And I actually forgot that Delenn, there was a secondary Delenn as part of the first wave that is Delenn from Mimbar from season one. In other words, without hair. She just has the bone crest and the bald head. Both Delens come with a uh, Mimbari fighter, which we already have a version of that as a micro-machine. Jakar also comes with a Mimbari fighter, which again, we also already have that one as a micro-machine, so it's no big deal in terms of how exclusive it is. And Londa Molari comes also with a Centauri ship, which again, already came you know, with the existing uh, micro-machines. Now, going back to the second wave with Ivanova and the Star Fury. That's good. You have Marcus Cole. And here's what's interesting. Marcus has a ship that's different. It's the other Mimbari fighter, which is the one uh, that is supposed to be the hybrid human Mimbari fighter that they used to fight the shadows. And that is a completely new, different kind of ship, which is really, really cool that they do that, that they're actually giving you something that looks a little bit different. Then you have Ambassador Kosh. He comes with a Vorlon ship, just like Micro Machines again. And then there's an alternate, a, a variant of, of Kosh called the Vorlon Visitor. He has a slightly different paint scheme. I'm not sure if that's supposed to be the, from the gathering. Uh, where exactly does it take place that the paint scheme changes? I purposely bought a second one because I was going to customize it. And maybe this might be the right time. I wanted to customize one so it looks a little more purple, like Kosh looks later. You know, with that secondary Kosh, I remember. And then they put out a Veer, uh, Lando's assistant, which came in two different colors. There was a blue version and a brown version as far as his uh, his coloring of his uh, uniform goes. I have the blue one of those two. Now, with either version of Veer, we get what's called the Centauri Heavy Warship, which is a different kind of ship. Once again, not part of the Micro Machine Collection. This, in its larger size, is the only way you can get it. I believe we might have seen it in one of the episodes when they're bombarding the Narn home world. You could see this actual ship in action. With Ivanova, they also put out an exclusive from White Guides Exclusive, a different company. Again, trying to create exclusivity. What they basically did is they took the regular Ivanova figure and they recolored it to give her the blue uniform, the pre-secession uniform, which I guess in a way, that is something they could have done later on with most of the other you know, crew members of Babylon 5. They could have repainted a lot of them in the blue uniforms, and maybe that's something that they were going to think about doing in the future is creating alternate blue ones but unfortunately by the time this uh, series was over this this set of figures were over they never went beyond that blue one as far as repeating colors i'm talking about wave number three had michael garibaldi and he had a um a babylon 5 shuttle that came with it again repeat no big deal dr franklin came also black uniform and he actually came with a special ship that was not released 
you know, as part of the micro machine. So all of a sudden now, you know, we have a secondary nice ship. I'm not entirely sure what the ship is in terms of, I don't remember it. I would have to dig up to see, you know, to which episode it alludes to, but I'm not sure. But on the package, it is labeled as the Earth Science Vessel. Very distinctive looking ship, very different from the other ones we've seen. And again, a completely original one. You also had the Shadow Sentinel, which was the hardest one for me to find out of all of them. And I remember it took me forever to the point where I never found it. And then I got it as a gift many, many, many years later. And it is such a cool different kind of figure it looks like a shadow spider it's completely original there is no way you can take this figure and redo it in any shape or form it is just absolutely perfect and this particular figure has no accessory no no ship or anything like that it comes by itself on the card which was uh you know kind of rare that they, wow, they didn't even go that far. You figure here we have a chance for us to get an actual shadow ship, but they, they didn't do it. Then you had Lita Alexander. She also comes with a ship. And then a variant of Lita, which is supposed to be Lita with the black gloves because she's one of the, you know, she's part of the telepath. So that is one of the worst uh, repaints in the history, I think, of repaints because all they did was they painted her hands black and all of a sudden it's a variant. So it's like, wow, that's that's really hitting below the belt as far as I'm concerned. So then you have Lanier. And again, they did a variant version, which is the same Lanier with the same starfish-shaped uh, Mimbari cruiser, except he's wearing two different uh, clothes, uh, colors of clothes. I have the more standard one of those two. Then finally, finally, the final, final wave, the one that came around sometime around 1999 or 2000, when the companies switched to N2 Toys, originally, you know, before they made this switch, if Exclusive Premiere was going to continue the line, they were going to also bring out a Pacmara figure, which is another one of these alien races. But instead, because they lost... I guess the rights or they relinquished them or whatever it is that happened, this other company, N2 Toys, decided to put out the same amount of figures that we're going to put out initially, except for the Pac Mara one, which is really sad because it was a really cool looking figure. Some of the best looking ones, and this always happens with these collections, you know, that sometimes I go after is that the later lines are usually the best ones because they get it so right. And this is one of the best lines because it has some of the best looking figures. First figure is Captain Elizabeth Lockley from later, you know, I think it was season five of Babylon 5. She is wearing the blue traditional uniform. Then you have Psych Cop Alfred Bester. He's wearing all black, very good rendition of Walter Koenig. Then you have Ambassador of the Drazi, which is a very good looking rendition of that creature. They did create a variant one, I believe. The Ambassador of the Gaim. This is a really cool looking one, a very spacey kind of uniform with a very unusual helmet, again, from the show. And they also created an alternate one of that. And those were the last ones. Again, I wish they would have done the Pacmara because it is one of those background creature races that always showed up, showed up you know, on the show, just like those other couple of races. But yeah, it's a shame that they kind of stopped it where they did. Obviously, everything kind of stopped, you know, when the show ended, more or less. And there was so many more places they could have gone. There were so many more characters, more variants. Obviously, the uniform colors is an easy way of, of getting around that if you do exclusives. But what I've recently done is I've taken all of my figures and I 
you know, as I rotate my collections, I brought them up front here and I put all my figures down with all my micro machines. And as soon as my Babylon 5 station is complete, I will take its its right place there and it will spend some time, uh, you know, in my studio here, reliving our <laughs> Babylon 5 days. One more interesting little fact here is that this fourth wave of figures, for some reason, even though the packaging looked very much like the first three waves, they decided to change and not include ships this time around. And instead, they used patches. They put in a couple of patches from each individual race or military branch or whatever as part of the uh, the package that would be included. And again, this would have been a great thing if they would have continued it, but everything kind of ended at that point. But I am at least grateful that some of the ships that Micro Machines never made, we were able to kind of supplement them, you know, here by using the ones that come with the figures. Looking at the figures, once again, I am very impressed at the quality. The paint detail is very well done. The likenesses are very well done. The only shortcomings is that they're usually all five points of articulation. This is a time, again, where even though you did have the McFarlane's creeping in, and uh, which, which blew everyone away, McFarlane just blew everyone away, and all the copycats started after McFarlane, they did not choose to uh, do more articulation on them or include any kind of accessories, which is really odd because, you know, with action figures, you usually do that. Some of them actually do have weapons, but they're sculpted into their bodies, so you cannot remove them. You know, you see a holster and a gun, but you cannot remove them from the body. They're attached. So that is kind of interesting. So, again, you know, when it comes to toys and that sort of thing, even something like Babylon 5, uh, while it might not have had a huge impact as far as merchandising goes, there is something still out there. And the prices are still, you know, not that bad. You can find some pretty decent stuff out there. I just wish they would have made more, you know. But in a way, it's that mixed blessing of the, well, too bad there's not more, but it's actually a good thing because then your collection is complete. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. We try to chronicle as best as possible the creation and the seasons of Babylon 5 and, you know, what the show meant to me and how I got involved with watching it and my thoughts on the matter, which by now you probably understand I'm a very big fan. And then we also looked at the merchandising aspect, meaning specifically talking about the toys and, you know, what I own and what I'm in the process of working on right now, the, the model of the station. And I am going to, I think, probably in some time in the near future, start working on the Star Fury model because that's a nice, nice big model to work on. And you never know, hopefully in the future, maybe the show will be remastered in a way where you could see it in Blu-ray or even 4K, who the heck knows? It's a matter of time and money as usual. And we'll see what happens in terms of, I know there have been a couple of attempts at maybe doing something else with that particular franchise. Uh, Straczynski has, you know, every now and then teased us with the possibility. So, you know, I don't think we've seen the last of Babylon 5, but for those who haven't even tried it, it's out there. Like I said before, Amazon Prime, I believe, currently has the entire series so give it a try it's a different kind of style that caught on later i hate to say the term ahead of its time but the story structure was probably a little ahead of its time and it's something that was later copied by other more successful shows but it's out there give it a shot 
So on behalf of everybody here, thank you for listening, and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. The year is 2245. Ambassadors from a hundred worlds use Earth as a pawn in alien war games. Humans were warned to stay close to home. They didn't listen. We can take care of them in Bari. Arrogance and stupidity all in the same package. How efficient of you. One last battle. This is foolish. The human race ends with the current generation. But at least we will have a fighting chance of taking them out with us. I've seen us. presumed to be hostile. Weapon hot kill. The humans. Bari will. I repeat. Fire. Find out why humanity's first step into space was almost its last. And its worst enemy was its only hope for survival. Watch In the Beginning, the first ever full-length Babylon 5 movie. See the two-hour world premiere next. And don't miss the series starting tomorrow, exclusively on TNT. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>